everyone, and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Side Dish is delighted today to be partnered with the IFT Toxicology and Safety Evaluation Division to discuss the facts about the safety of high-intensity sweeteners in general and aspartame specifically. Just in case we have some listeners who are not familiar with aspartame, it's a highly studied high-intensity sweetener that was first approved for use by the FDA back in 1974 and then again in 1981. And yet recently seems to have run into some really heavy traffic again. Thanks to the IFT Toxicology and Safety Evaluation Division for providing us with three experts today who can help us really understand the background of this subject, what's been going on recently, and help us clarify what the real situation is. Our guests today are three toxicology experts in food. Gavin Thompson with Ramble US Consulting, Jim Coglin of Coglin Associates, and Ray Matuka from the Burdock Group of Consultants. Gavin, Jim, and Ray, welcome to Side Dish, and thank you for offering to share your expertise with us today. Thank you very much for thank your you. opportunity. So I'd like to start today by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved with food toxicology. So, Gavin, let's start with you. What's your story? Well, I've been working in product safety and primarily food ingredient and food contact substances, all the food additives, uh, for almost 40 years. And there's always something new uh, and there's always chemicals or substances that uh, find new uses in either food or food packaging. And um, the sweeteners is just one minor segment of that, but it's obviously one of the largest in terms of public image and certainly issues today. But I've been working on various ingredients in the food supply um, for many, many years. And I think it's a fascinating uh, field because there's always new developments, new product mm. being developed. Mm. And Jim, what's your background? Uh, well, first, Bruce, um, thanks for having me today. Um, I was trained in starting in the early 70s. I've been in food science for 51 years now. Wow. I'm trained at University of California, Davis, master's, PhD, and postdoc. It was all chemistry. I'm a chemist by training before that, an undergraduate. But when I got into studying the chemistry of toxicants, it totally changed my life. I kept going with the chemistry training, but I was all over carcinogens and heavy metals and toxicants. And so I stayed at Davis an extra year and did a postdoc in toxicology. And now for my entire career, I was 12 years in the food industry in the U.S., um, but I'm totally the toxicologist who knows a lot of chemistry, and that's really been helpful. So I work on a range of things. Um, for the past 32 years, I've been on my own consulting here in Southern California, and I work on all sorts of whole foods like coffee and meat, but lots of things, lots of separate food ingredients and food contaminants. And I, it's just for me, it's just a very exciting field and career. Mm, excellent. And Ray, what about you? What's your story? Well, I haven't been in the food toxicology industry quite as long as Gavin or Jim. I've been in it for around 20 years now. 
And uh, prior to that, I looked a lot more into, you know, as a classically trained toxicologist, into pesticides and other types of contaminants being utilized. But I really wanted to utilize my chemistry and biology background. And so that's one of the reasons why I got into toxicology, because it's really an applied science. I and mean, you're really looking at what's going on in the body. And that really fascinated me. And utilizing food was one of the most applied types of aspects that I could uh, look at because we all eat food and there are definitely uh, effects on the body um, from food ingredients. Mm. So let's get our conversation underway with, you know, the core subjects that we were looking for today. And and Ray, can we just stay with you and, and let's talk – a little bit about erythritol and and the safety data and the FDA reviews. Is there a difference between the scientific information needed for the approval of a food ingredient by the FDA versus the regulatory requirements for an ingredient that is grass or generally regarded as safe? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure, that's a good question. The fact is a lot of people have been asking Oh, well, FDA needs to review everything. They've got to make sure that everything's safe. Well, food additives are approved through FDA, but it takes the same amount of safety data that's provided to FDA as a food additive to support the safety when something is evaluated by the company that's producing the ingredient to reach a generally recognized as safe grass conclusion. So in that aspect, the types and the, the amount of data that's necessary is really the same. So you really look at a lot of data going through this process. Many in, ingredients are looked upon with preclinical data going for two years or more in rodent studies and evaluating the actual composition of the ingredient all the way down to you know, 1% uh, or so of the actual ingredients. So these are really, really strongly studied uh, ingredients that are evaluated for their safety and use. Right. And and so do all sweeteners on that basis need to be approved by the FDA before being used in fruit? So actually, not all sweeteners are approved by FDA. They They do not go through an actual approval process but they are um, evaluated by FDA. Uh, FDA can request the information um, from the company to show safety. Case in point is erythritol in the fact that erythritol was provided to FDA early in um, the late 1990s when it was first being evaluated as a non-nutritive sweetener. They moved that over to uh, actually acknowledge and, and let FDA see all the data, all the safety data, in which there was carcinogenicity studies conducted, subchronic 90-day studies, two-year uh, reproduction studies, a whole gamut of studies was conducted on erythritol. And this information has been evaluated over the years, first starting in 2001, and then throughout the 2000s up until the last uh, notification of grass was in 2018, in which the uh, company received a what's called a no objection letter from FDA, stating that FDA didn't have any questions at this time. 
And, and since that time, there was a publication which uh, I think we have generally called the Cleveland Clinic Study published. Tell me that a little bit true. about that and, and what, how that's changed anything with, with respect to uh, erythritol. Well, that was a very interesting study. Um, the uh, studies researchers looked at that data and compiled uh, data from actually population of subjects that were in their their upper 60s, um, mid to upper 60s. So um, I won't call them old because I'm getting towards that area. But um, these subjects were actually uh, looked at their plasma levels of erythritol. And the researchers tried to correlate what was going on with the levels of erythritol and other what are considered polyols or, or sugar alcohols mm-hmm. and correlate that with potential disease states. So in that area, they actually found that there was an association between erythritol and potential uh, disease effects, such as cardiometabolic issues. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim, I, I might bring you into the conversation here at this point because there's as a connection between erythritol and, and aspartame, isn't there? Well, there there can be, and it's it's not something that we we often talk about. The the, the more the connection is between the erythritol and stevia, um, which I think Gavin can can tell us more about. But um, aspartame, pretty separate from from the erythritol story, um, for sure. So, so tell us more about aspartame then. Well, you mentioned it. It's been approved since um, 1971. Um, J.D. Searle and company, the big drug company, discovered it in the 60s, and we got the approval um, first in 1971. Then it had some hard times for, for several years. Uh, massive number of studies had been done, and um, FDA approved um, it for a wide range of uses under what's called a food additive petition process. That's one of the other ways to get an additive approved. And what is required there is this is a, it can be a chemical that has never occurred in a food before, a synthetic chemical like aspartame. And you've got to run it through a very rigorous food additive process at FDA, um, requiring hundreds of studies, animal studies, human studies, um, chemistry. Uh, What's the impact on the environment? Um, What's the exposure that people are going to get if it's sitting in the products? And then you also have to limit what where you want to add the product. You petition to put it in, say, beverages like Coke and Pepsi, and then the next petition comes along and you're extending it to other other food supply, other food um, ingredients. Um, we keep saying the name aspartame. That's the chemical name. This, it's a dipeptide of aspartic acid and phenylalanine, just two simple amino acids hooked together. And the phenylalanine has a methyl group on it, and that makes it go from tasteless to being sweeter than 200 times sweeter than than sucrose uh, just by hanging that methyl group on there. Um, so it's been studied and studied and studied. And I think the last new approval of an addition that from FDA occurred in 1996. I mean, we added it first to chewing gum. Uh, Nutrasweet, by the by the way, is the is the um, the commercial name of it, and people also know it in the little packets as Equal. So aspartame is Nutrasweet is Equal. It's all the same 
all the same chemical. Um, and these evaluations have been going on very, very smoothly. FDA and European authorities, Canadian, um, Japanese, Australian, New Zealand, everybody who really studies aspartame hard just keeps has kept adding um, approvals to aspartame with the caveat that you got to stay below an acceptable daily intake level from all of the different foods being added together. Um, I could jump to a conclusion. We're going to talk about the big controversy that happened this year, but well, let's do that now. I mean, yeah, we've we've talked about it. Can I say it? Aspartame is safe. Aspartame is safe. Aspartame is safe. I mean, it's, it has been millions and millions of dollars worth of studies through the years. There have been these hiccups um, that have occurred. Um, and the biggest hiccup to date, and th- this is not going back to the 70s or the 80s, but there's a research institute in Italy, in Bologna, Italy, called the Ramazzini Institute, and they do research. Ramazzini, um, during the years um, 2006 to 2010, published um, three um, a series of three studies in rats and mice. They were lifetime studies where you fed the rats and mice very high doses of aspartame right. for their entire lifetimes. We call them chronic um, carcinogenicity studies. And they published their findings. And in these animals, they were looking, they saw tumors um, of the liver, of the lung, um, the lymphoid organs, even in the mammary glands. And they started making a big stink about their findings and were urging governments all across the world to ban aspartame because of their findings. So once these studies started coming out, um, independent scientists, researchers at universities and research institutes, and then the agencies like FDA and the European Food Safety Authority dug into all of this, and they completely disagree with the findings of the Ramazzini Institute studies. The pathology was done terribly. The methodology wasn't good. The data interpretation, I mean, these these researchers overcalled all of their findings just to, to scare the heck out of the world mm-hmm. that aspartame is not safe and it should be banned. So, you know, the, these these criticisms, these published criticisms have occurred in within the agencies. They've occurred in the literature for since 2010. And everything was going along pretty fine until... Something happened a few years ago. The International Agency for Research on Cancer, we call it IARC, I-A-R-C, prioritized aspartame as a chemical that should be reviewed for its carcinogenicity potential. And that was kind of based on everything's been safe for decades, and along comes Ramazzini, and now they're calling it a a carcinogen. And IARC, which is an agency um, of the World Health Organization, it's an arm of WHO. Um, In Lyon, they've been around since 1965. Um, Their early days, they were interested in, in evaluating chemicals that occurred in laboratories and in workplaces to keep people in occupation safe, but it is, but it has since um, devolved into um, IARC evaluating the carcinogenicity of now it's up to over 1000 different um, chemicals. They, you know, in every industry and, and and not just chemicals, radiation, Mm -hmm. smoking, environmental tobacco smoke. They look at, 
they look at all of these things. And IARC does something called um, their classification system. They classify carcinogens into one of five groups. Um, and this gets a little detail, but group one, flat out, the worst is human carcinogens. Right. They, they declare that this chemical or this, this action or substance is a human carcinogen. It goes down to 2A and 2B, which is probable and possible carcinogens. Mm. The group three, which is the largest group, most of the chemicals, half of the chemicals they've looked at fall in group three. And it, and they say, it's just not classifiable. We could not determine um, whether the, you know, the chemical under review um, did or did not cause cancer. So it was kind of, it, they just put it in this non-classifiable category. An important part of all of this is that IARC puts together what's called the monograph working groups. And a monograph right. is winds up being a book. And sometimes they look at three or four different count chemicals that might be similar. They might just look at, at one or two chemicals. Um, and the working group is selected from around the world, um, research institutes, universities, government agencies, um, including many times U.S. government agency um, people get invited to serve on the, the IARC working groups. Um, and they get together for eight days in Lyon. They lock themselves behind doors and they go through the entire process working. The staff works for the year before that, putting everything together. And then they, they come to a consensus vote on, is it group one? Is it group 2A, 2B or whatever? And they did this in June um, in the eight-day process. And they came out with, with aspartame coming out, the group 2B, which is kind of in the middle. It's called possible human carcinogen. Right. There wasn't enough evidence for probable. There wasn't enough evidence for flat-out human carcinogen. And they came up with this 2B classification um, when 23 or 24 people were invited to sit there. I've had experience back in 2006. Industry observers are allowed to volunteer to come in, and they approve us. I did it in 2006. I spent my eight days in Lyon on nitrate and nitrite and nitrosamines, which, right. you know, that's a cancer evaluation. So I've seen it from the inside, but I've also, in my entire career, 40 years of doing this, um, I've had to make IARC determinations a very big part of my career and my life because IARC, when IARC says something, governments have to react. Um, yeah. They don't have to, but they usually react. And so knowing this was going through IARC, there's another arm of the World Health Organization called JECFA, and it's been around, I think, also since 1965, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives. And this group pulls together, people serve on it for three or four years at a time, another um, you know, 20 people who are invited to meet for, for a week at a time to review various chemicals. The key things they do, they look at food additives and what level is safe, and they, and they describe an acceptable daily intake, but they also look at contaminants. Right. And this JECFA committee feeds these evaluations, these risk assessments, to the Codex Committee on Food Additives and the Codex Committee on Contaminants in Food. So it's a very valuable, it's usually quite balanced, it's sane. And so 
when WHO knew that this thing was going to IARC, that aspartame was going to IARC, they said, why don't we have JECFA look at it at the same time? So two weeks later, JECFA looked at aspartame in their own private meeting, and it came around to July 14th, 2023, and a joint press release was issued. Bottom line, I have already told you about IARC. It came out possible human carcinogen. Yes. JECFA said, we don't believe that. We don't believe it's a human carcinogen. And they they set the acceptable daily intake at 40 milligrams per kilogram body weight, the same it's been for the past 30 years. So two arms of the WHO disagreeing. They thought there was going to be agreement. IARC was hoping that Chekva would come down hard on aspartame. Not ban it, of course. This this advisory group can't ban things, but they wanted, you know, wanted more they wanted to have a double whammy. IARC did, I think, and they didn't get it. So that has led to a huge controversy. And it all revolves around two sets of data. The Ramazzini studies from Italy that nobody believes in the rats and mice. And a Ramazzini researcher was one of the voting members of the working group. And then they looked at human epidemiology and came out with liver cancer as a possible um, cancer site. And three or four of the people who were invited to come and sit for eight days at IARC in Lyon, they were the ones who published these studies. So they basically sat around peer reviewing their Their own own studies and didn't want to listen to anybody disagreeing with them. And we came out with aspartame as a possible human carcinogen. Let me end quickly with that has led to all the media nonsense and and huge uproar since July 14th. But also there are now law firms in the U.S. that are advertising for people. If you've ever had aspartame in your Coke and your Pepsi and your chewing gum or wherever you've had it, Come on in and see us. We can probably put it all together in a class action suit and get you a judgment and a big pot of money. So that's where we sit in October of 2023, just a couple of months after this joint um, press release came out. Now, that's a long story. I've kind of tried to boil it down, but... It's yeah, a no, it's it, it's an interesting story, and it, and it encapsulates the the challenge of trying to get some some sanity around this whole review process. And it clearly sounds like there's a lot of different people with reviewing all the information. And, and I know you made your point very very clear at the start, saying you know you you said it three times that you in your view it's safe. But as a food toxicologist and looking at the scientific community in general. What's your assessment of the sci- the general scientific view of the safety of aspartame? Well, I mean, I I do this as a part of my career, looking at individual um, chemicals like sweeteners and other food ingredients. We go through rigorous animal testing. We look at human studies. We look at exposure. We do something called exposure assessment that determines, hey, how many milligrams of this chemical are you actually exposed to if you're allowed to eat the range of dietary ingredients that might contain aspartame. Right. And we we then, after we do risk assessment, we say, now we've got to put safety factors on it. And Mm -hmm. for 50 years 
is kind of the center of the existence of you got to put a hundredfold safety factor on any animal tox findings of cancer. So you find the dose in the rats and mice that don't cause cancer in these two-year studies, and you go a hundred times below that, and you say that's the safe level for humans. So as a toxicologist, but also as a consumer, as a father and grandfather, I, there, I have no problems with where we have aspartame um, in the diet in the U.S. and around right. the world. I believe the levels that in which we take it in have nothing to do with the findings from these rat and mouse um, studies that were done by, by Ramazzini. So, so you've used the, the observation that these are rats and mice studies, and just so our, our wider listening audience gets some sense of it, what's the safety margin that is generally put on for an animal study versus a human study when you look at you know, the, the lowest dose that might cause a, 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 an, an impact on, on the, the animal? Well, we actually go lower than that, Bruce. We go to, if there's three doses or four doses in a study, we go to the dose that did not cause an increase in tumors. And then we go generally, and um, Gavin, um, Ray, I mean, you can certainly join in here. I mean, it, this hundredfold factor on a cancer study is, you know, something that we usually usually depend upon. On the human side, they look at real humans in epidemiology studies, and they look at what People are taking in their diets and they look at their the endpoints for cancer. And so that doesn't have the same safety factor, but it says, okay, for instance, with coffee, what does one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight cups of coffee, does it cause this cancer or that cancer? So the human studies are more real world, but the database on human cancer and aspartame does not show an, a real increase in human cancer risk. All right. Uh, yeah, Bruce, so, this, uh, the one thing I would like to add to this is this uncertainty factor or safety factor. It's important to understand that it, these, this number is not just thrown into an equation to come up with a, a, an acceptable intake for humans just as a, a, a math exercise. The, the, metabolic pathway by which what what happens to the ingredient when you eat it, when you consume it, whether it's a mouse, a rat, a pig, a human, um, to make sure that we understand that what's happening in the in the animal study, and by the way, some of the animal studies go on for a very long time. Chronic two-year studies have been done multi-generational studies to make sure that what we're looking at in those animal studies is going to be equivalent to what happens to when a human consumes the ingredient. So it's not just a matter of doing a feeding study in a mouse or a rat and then saying, oh, this is what's going to happen in a human. There's actual chemistry, mechanistic information that has to be collected. The absorption. On top of the safety margin that Absolutely. Jim talked about. Absolutely, because yeah. um, and the, the reason I interjected on that is uh, some people may think this is funny, but the, the safety factor would actually be a little lower if it were pigs because uh, 
they're so much like humans in in mm. metabolizing certain compounds. Right. So, uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is there can be studies done in many different, whether it's guinea pigs, pigs, rats, mice. Uh, some of these sweeteners have gone through multi generational studies in multiple animal feeding studies. Yeah. And is one of them. Yeah, and erythritol is one of them. And I'll let I'll get back to Ray and I just want to add what we're talking about is the weight of evidence. And the thing I focus on with the JECFA committee that Jim mentioned, the J stands for joint. You have a whole bunch of experts gathered from different aspects of the food ingredient business realm and practice and it's not like the IARC meeting in the sense that the the JECFA folks are looking at all sorts of different studies uses of the ingredient types sources so the fact that there's this relook the rebalancing when new studies come out um adding to the complete picture of the ingredients uh, safety and also what are the special conditions of the study that was done right and so, um, so while I, while I've got you Gavin and and you, you were focused on on you um, I'd, I'd like to transition a little bit and and look at a more contemporary sweetener that a lot of people would be aware of the stevia and and mistakenly before I, I did try and link erythritol to aspartame but but Ray uh, and and Jim corrected me on that and said look the the connection with erythritol is actually with stevia rather than aspartame so can you tell me a little bit more about that connection so what what happens with a lot of these sweeteners um, and stevia is an example um, is there are they're so much sweeter than sugar or they have a bite to them actually sweetness is a very very complicated thing and it's it's individual I won't name any other sweeteners, but I'm sure there are people who know that some artificial sweeteners taste bad to them. Mm. And there's a whole science of um, that aspect of the sweetness. Right. So a lot of sweeteners are are combined. Uh, The low and no calorie sweeteners are often combined in a product because you have to take the edge, the sharpness off of one sweetener. With something like stevia, the the substances that are purified out of stevia are so sweet, they have to be cut basically with something else to make it manageable. And uh, erythritol is one of the substances that it's mixed with, and there are others. So a product may not just have one sweetener in it in, uh, for a low or no calorie sweetener product. Um, gums are a good example. Uh, chewing gums for are an example where you'll probably see, we haven't talked about it, but acesulfam K, uh, potassium, acesulfam potassium is a adjuvant to other sweeteners in rounding off the sweetness. And this all has to do with the fact that Sweetness can be impacted dramatically by whether the 
sweet substance sits on the sweet receptor taste bud too long. Yeah, I, it may seem contradictory, but if it sits there too long, it actually creates a bad reaction. Mm-hmm. And if I can jump in here just for a second, Bruce, um, the unique uh, connection between stevia and erythritol is very interesting with erythritol because it is not like most non-nutritive sweeteners. Erythritol is actually 60% Uh, as sweet as sugar. So it's less sweet than sugar actually is. So it can be used kind of like a bulking agent or like an agent, as Gavin was saying, to kind of uh, reduce that overall sharp, bitter sweetness aspect. And so it's really utilized um, in a a positive way to Mm. kind of even out that mouthfeel, even out that aspect. The reason why it's a a non-nutritive sweetener is the fact that it is not readily um, degraded uh, when it goes through the metabolic process. It is mostly excreted from the body. Like 90% or more is excreted mm. from the body wow. unchanged. So in that way, it is it is utilized as a non-nutritive sweetener. But, but given stevia is a, a relatively contemporary non-nutritive sweetener <laughs> or low-nutritive sweetener, I should say, um, what's different about the evaluation process, safety evaluation process that we went through for stevia versus, say, erythritol or aspartame? So stevia, um, Pitt, before I answer that question, I have to back up one step with the US FDA, and that is to say for all these sweeteners, one of the main concerns is something Jim was talking about earlier, which is what is the, how do you control the amount that's intake that people ingest during in a day? So FDA concerned about overall food safety of ingredients is takes a special concern when we're talking about what is called tabletop sweeteners. And every, right. everyone knows what a tabletop sweetener is. It's that little collection of packets at a restaurant or the diner uh, with all the different, you know, you have a pink packet, a yellow packet, a blue packet. Um, because people can add the sweetener to their food during the day and have multiple sources of the sweetener throughout the day, they can actually have a fairly high intake. Because of that, FDA had taken the position for a long time that the only way to approve sweeteners was to do what Jim said, which was go the food additive petition route. When stevia was finally, I I don't want to say discovered because native uh, indigenous people in South America knew about stevia, for uh, some time, so let's not call it a new discovery. But when it was realized that this could be scaled up and made into specific substances for human consumption on a larger scale, and it was very sweet once you separated it from the bitter rest of the plant, companies wanted to bring this to market and after seeing all that had happened with some other substances, they said, wait a minute, we're willing to spend the millions, and I, it is millions of dollars, to develop the safety data 
and we are going to go through the, what Congress created, the generally recognized as safe determination route. And FDA was very concerned about this, but the, the, the companies involved in this process did go the grass route. And I would suggest anyone concerned about the safety of sweeteners to read the two, uh, the, the two original grass notifications, they're all public domain, for stevia, grass notice 252 and 253. Because what's clear in what Leslie Lake Curry and the team at Cargill did in 252, GRN 252, is they went, they said, look, here's what's in the literature that is, this is not good. Here's some study that needs to be addressed. Here's an issue, a criticism someone has raised. Studies were done to address all those issues, one right after another. Mul multiple multi-generational studies were done. All of this was published. It's in the public domain. You can read the studies. A special issue of Food and Chemical Talks was actually published with Stevia uh, toxicology studies in it. So, so your view is the, the it's a lot more transparent than it's than much the, more transparent, right. and I think it demonstrates the real strength of going that route. Some uh, of the criticism you hear even before this summer on aspartame is that the murkiness of FDA's original approval. Well, you don't have that with the grass notification route and stevia. Right. The stevia approvals are all very transparent and in the mm. public domain. Mm. And so do you see that approval process where you go the grass route as being a, a future pathway for other food safety assessments for other additives or other things that might come along? I, I think it's quite popular now. I mean, Ray can speak to this also, but companies are finding that having this as he as he mentioned the the no questions letter regarding the safety is is a very important reassurance to not only the company using the ingredient but to customers of the product mm. and um the i think you will see a lot of use of that process right um Mm. So, so in your view, uh, stevia is uh, a, again a, a, a very accountable and a very safe material that we should have no qualms about using. And if you did have any qualms, you've got plenty of transparent access to the to the data. Is that is that what you would say to people? You have access to the data, and there are more than twenty grass notifications regarding different forms of stevia extracts now. So, mm. I think the 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 database is substantial and accessible and whatever questions. And one of the things about general recognition is if a new issue comes up, if a new study is done, general recognition of safety requires that that be addressed. Right. So grass is an evolving process for folks who are, you know, the general recognition of safety continues to build as the database builds. That's why I call it the weight of evidence uh, can increase over time. Mm. And mm. Um, there there doesn't seem to be any end to the interest in uh, 
additional uses. Now, the other point Jim made, though, when you add more uses, you get close, you may yep. uh, get closer and closer to the total acceptable daily intake. Yes. You won't have that problem with stevia because it's so much more potent than sugar in terms of sweetness. Right. That's why erythritol, right now the controversy is combinations of stevia with some other uh, sweeteners like erythritol. So it's clearly uh, uh, an incredibly interesting, evolving area, and and I'm sure there's uh, a number of people listening today that would be interested in maybe exploring the opportunities of taking up a career in this this area. So what advice would you give to those listeners who have been inspired by the information you've shared, and how can they get involved in this area related to the assessment and understanding of the safety of various food additives? Ray, how about you kick us off with that? Sure. Uh, Bruce, that's a good question. Many times there are courses, even online courses, that look at toxicology and look at food safety that anybody that's interested in them can actually go online and at least look into that information. Uh, They can always uh, reach out to people and understand what is going on, uh, such as with the uh, Institute of Food Technologists, such as our division, and say, hey, we're really interested in how things get moving forward in evaluating safety. Mm. What can we do? How can we do it? Right. So, Jim, what's, how would you add to that? Well, in my in my particular um, story, um, after spending some time in the Army during the Vietnam War era, I wanted to get back to school um, after my bachelor's degree, and I was, you know, wanting to go biochemistry, and that meant studying enzymes and probably working in a medical school lab. But I was headquartered in San Francisco, Presidio of San Francisco, and I looked up Interstate 80, and there was this university up there called University of California Davis, which is still sitting around there um, as probably the number one food and ag school in the world. Um, Others will disagree, but (laughs) but so I wanted to do food chemistry, biochemistry, but I tripped across the opportunity to study these toxicants, and my. In my very early first year of studying, there was a textbook in 1973 put out by the National Academy of Sciences called Naturally Occurring Toxicants in Food. That was a whole course. And from that moment on, I said, okay, I'm going to study the chemistry. These are the degrees that I can get, master's and PhD, but these toxicants, I can't believe it. And one of them sitting in there was caffeine from plants. I've now spent... 41 years of my life every day doing something about the health aspects of coffee and caffeine. So my natural, that's my, one of my naturally occurring toxicants, you know, (laughs) toxic at high doses, X number of grams, caffeine can kill you. Right. Not in Coke and Pepsi and tea and, and coffee. So this this allowed me, I was going to be this chemist, but then I became a food chemist and then a food and health person. And um, m- most of my career has been on what we call benefit risk evaluation. Toxicologists tell us everything about the risks of chemicals and agencies and governments, you know, have to think about banning them. But I have focused on the benefits and the risk, Mm. weighing the benefits of the food or ingredient versus the risks. And so I've combined 
you know, health, nutrition, epidemiology, toxicology, chemistry. I'm way past retirement age. I'm never going to retire. This is, <laughs> I tell people, until we can solve um, food and health and food and disease, I'm not going to quit. So mm. that's, that's how exciting this this. And I would urge any young people who think they want to go to medical school because they want to do something in, in medicine. This is an applied field that will that will bring you into working with almost every disease, coffee and caffeine. I've had to study almost every disease known to man because coffee or caffeine have either been accused of causing it or preventing the disease. So right. um, I'm mm. kind of a doctor, <laughs> the MD in the food science world. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a passion for me, for sure. And what about you, Gavin? What advice would you give to uh, people aspiring to uh, join this area? Well, I'll put it in the in the context of the problem we're facing right now that hasn't been mentioned, even though this is a discussion on low and non-nutritive sweeteners, and that gets to the benefit-risk comments Jim made. We have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes in the United States, and in some states, we're talking about more than a third going on towards half the population. These, these percentages are frightening. And I try to remind people because you see all sorts of ads on TV now on how manageable diabetes is. My uncle died uh, one limb at a time from diabetes. Ooh, diabetes yeah. can, is, can be deadly and it's mm. devastating. But the obesity problem and the pre-diabetic and diabetic states are something that the diet, we can counter with diet. So nutrition should be at the top of our list of things we can do to spend less money on medical care and, and prevent and prevention. So I, tell, I would tell young people that there, there's almost nothing more fascinating of on the science side than getting into food science at the basic level, chemistry, biochemistry, getting working on what is actually happening with people. We just barely touched the surface on what's really happening with sweeteners, but it's there's there's whole areas of um, the sweetness industry that that there's years of study and uh, product development that, to be worked on. Right. Uh, so I think nutrition, nu the nutrition and health promotion is a huge area that food scientists can aim towards. But it, I think you have to start with the basics of um, chemistry and biochemistry. Mm. And, and I'm sure all of you would probably agree that getting involved with the IFT toxicology and safety evaluation division is not going to hurt anybody's career. We always Except tell people who stop by or ask, you don't have to be a toxicologist to be active in this area. Um, many of our, I'm, I have a PhD in chemistry. The, there are many people who are under the mistaken impression that it's only about toxicology. But as you heard today, it involves everything from epidemiology, um, dietary intake assessment, Mm. Um, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. There's a lot of chemistry work. Um, 
there's so there's a lot of different things besides the toxicologists. I always say, you know, if if the if the substance doesn't doesn't cause um, adverse effects, they feel kind of disappointed with the studies. <laughs> So, Gavin, Ray, and and Jim, uh, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your knowledge with us. Look, I've learned a lot already, and this conversation has certainly helped us all to gain a much better understanding and and appreciation of the world of high-intensity sweeteners, and in particular the processes that we go through as an industry to uh, get approval for food additives in general. So thank you very much. And thank you, thank you for bringing us together. Um, it's been very enjoyable. Um, you can see the passion that we bring to to this field, and um, we like to get. Um, we're all old timers. You're looking at right here, so we'd love to get younger people involved in in these pursuits. Look, and thank you also to the IFT Toxicology and Food Evaluation Division for bringing us such an important topic. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcast from or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT or by searching the Institute of Food Technologist on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject, low and high intensity, low nutrient and high intensity sweeteners, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject you're interested into the search box and you should be able to gain a ton of extra resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.